0: Hi there and welcome to the second of our knowledge videos on asthma. My name is Tom Mason. I'm a respiratory registrar and with me today I've got Dr Nicola Smallcombe who's also a respiratory registrar in London. Hi Nicola. Hi. So today we're going to talk about um, the management of asthma and we're going to do that via a scenario similar to that which you might encounter in your interview. So you're asked to see a 35-year-old in respiratory clinic who is known to have asthma and is continuing to suffer with recurrent exacerbations. Observations are stable, so there's no acute concerns. Uh, explain how you would assess and manage this patient. So this is obviously a very common scenario that we see in a asthma or general respiratory chest clinic. So how would you approach this scenario, Nicola?
1: Yeah, so I think, first of all, just wanting to ascertain if it's a true diagnosis of asthma. So I think in the year just gone, they actually stated to the candidates that the asthma diagnosis had been confirmed, so people moved on, but just making sure that we've got a clear that when that was diagnosed and how it was diagnosed, and then just having a think about the pattern of the patient's symptoms, describing the nature of their recent exacerbations, so just defining that they are true exacerbations, they've had steroids, etc., and how long they've gone on for. Hmm. i think also it's useful in the asthmatic population just to ask them about their nasal symptoms because a lot of them are triggered by nasal symptoms or having allergies and finding out if they've got congestion etc and then obviously classically obviously we ask about if they've ever had an icu admission talking about their inhalers so how often are they picking up their prescription because adherence obviously is a big thing in asthma and then if they know their best peak flow and then of course just asking them about their smoking status so it's quite a lot to fit in i think in an asthma history but yeah those would be my sort of top things
0: yeah and I'd I'd completely agree I mean I think trying to trying to really nail down on their adherence is really important because that's a really really common reason for people to exacerbate also as you say any infective symptoms because that's another big cause and also any diurnal variation so classically symptoms worse at night obviously points towards these symptoms being more driven by asthma rather than anything else and um, how would you how would you proceed after after taking some uh, some history?
1: So in clinic, I wanted to get sort of a basic set of observations and then examination. And I think keeping it quite brief, the examination, just talking about the key things that you're looking for. So, I mean, you can mention whether or not you think they're clubbed and then having a listen to their chest, listening for any added wheeze, etc. And then the, just simple things you can do at the bedside, things like peak flow and checking their inhaler, technique as also something that i would mention about doing in clinic and those are sort of the key bits that i would do within the clinic room i think
0: yeah great so in this scenario we find that he had a confirmed diagnosis of asthma age 25 so 10 years ago mm-hmm. he's on foster mdi virus spacer 106 as a as a marked regimen and so maintenance and release and relief therapy um, and so it's really important to yeah, clarify, A, what their inhaler therapy is, B, do they know how to use it properly? Are they happy with their device? And also sort of slightly tied into this is what is their use of salbutamol like as well? So obviously people with more poorly controlled asthma are likely to have more salbutamol use, and it has been shown that frequency of the repeat Salbutamol prescriptions from GP are a predictor of mortality in asthma. So recurrently requesting salbutamol is linked to worse asthma control and worse mortality from asthma. And in terms of, you know, this this patient, I think you'll be trying to ascertain, you know, what's the underlying reason behind the worsening symptoms or poorly controlled symptoms so once you've ascertained that you know they they adherent to their therapy are they having any infections are their symptoms due to something else other than asthma so for example have they developed another pathology as well or is that asthma therapy is or is their asthma just inadequately controlled with the current inhaled therapy. And that can often be because, you know, their, their degree of eosinophilic asthma inflammation just is too much for their current dose of inhaled steroids to control. Something else which is really useful in terms of quantifying the exacerbations is to, you know, find out the number of courses of oral steroids that they've needed in the last 12 months and antibiotics. Have these courses been weaned and have they ever been on maintenance prednisolone as well? And sometimes it is possible to get a formal adherence check via the GP or pharmacist or community care records to see how many inhalers in terms of their maintenance therapy have they actually collected in the last 12 months so if for instance they've only collected six inhalers in the last year that suggests that despite what they're telling you they're not taking it similarly you can see how many salbutamols have they requested how many courses of antibiotics and steroids have they had and what if any investigations would you like to get to try to um narrow down this um, yes this scenario a little bit
1: So within the clinic setting, obviously, as I said, peak flow is really important, making sure you get that with good technique. I think also if you've not had any imaging for a while, you want to get a chest X-ray on this patient, just again to check if there's anything else that's that's going on that they've developed in relation to their asthma. And then also key sort of blood tests. Uh, So obviously you get this sort of full battery of blood tests, full blood count, and particularly looking at eosinophils and that, because that will help check their adherence with their steroid inhaler also uh, inflammatory markers etc as per but also making sure you get a total IgE in these patients and checking their aspergillus IgG and IgE and I tend to get an HIV test just to check that we're not missing anything I think usually it's a good opportunity to check in most patients when we see them and I think if, if if you haven't been told that the diagnosis has been confirmed I would always talk about you know spirometry with reversibility and also getting a pheno because asthma is quite such a heterogeneous condition in some ways and there's no sort of one gold standard way to diagnose it as per the nice guidelines and it's a clinical diagnosis but the spirometry variability obviously is very helpful but in this gentleman's case obviously we've been told that he's already got a confirmed diagnosis so we wouldn't necessarily repeat it but i think it's good to have an awareness of that
0: yeah so i think the point about the full blood count to check the eosinophils is is really important if the eosinophils are high that can suggest that, you know, whatever asthmatic eosinophilic type 2 inflammation just isn't being controlled Mm. with the inhaled corticosteroids, and that can be due to non-adherence or just inadequate therapy. Pheno, like you said, is also very helpful. So fraction of exhaled nitric oxide is another marker of eosinophilic airway inflammation. It can be done in a clinic setting in in a lot of cases now, and it's a, you know, 30-second test that can give you really good information about about what's going on with their airway inflammation. So definitely a useful useful factor. Also, the relevance of the eosinophils is that uh, in conjunction with poorly controlled asthma and uh, frequent exacerbations, if people have an eosinophil count of more than 0.3 and they're confirmed to be adherent to inhaled therapy, and one maximal inhaled therapy as a high dose inhaled corticosteroid, then you could consider uh, more advanced therapies like the GICS against uh, IL-5 or the IL-5 receptor like mepolizumab or Benralizumab, which can be accessed via a tertiary asthma centre. So it's good to know that there are a few further options available. In this case, I think we find that he hasn't really had much in the way of infectious triggers. He is adherent to his to his current foster therapy, but is only using it as a maintenance and relief therapy, which means that he only takes it if he has symptoms with the rationale that if you're getting symptoms, you'll have more steroid and more control of your, of your asthmatic symptoms. So I think the first step in this case would probably be to move to a, um, a more regular regimen of two puffs in the morning and two puffs in the evening. And then, if there's still inadequate control on that, then you could consider moving to a higher dose inhaled corticosteroid, say so Foster 206. Mm. Obviously, assuming that the inhaler technique is, is optimal as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's a point as well, actually, for the because of obviously this year they asked candidates to demonstrate inhaler technique on the interview. And there's some good things online, there's right breathe and other things that people can use for reference just to go through different inhaler techniques useful just to have a rough idea
0: yeah perfect other things to to consider I think would be that um, you know breathlessness in asthma isn't necessarily always down to airways disease so we know that people with genuine asthma do also sometimes have a degree of a breathing pattern disorder on top of that and that can be useful to evaluate further with the aid of uh, specialist physiotherapists.
1: Um, Is it? I always pronounce this wrong the Nijmegen questionnaire. Yes. Well, that's quite useful for breathing pattern disorder, mm. just to quantify the
0: And also ensuring that they're up to date with, with any vaccinations. So everyone should be up to date with their COVID flu vaccines. That's always important to check. Do you think there's something else that you'd add to that, Nikki?
1: No, I think the only the only other thing is just if, with the patterns, just if there's any relation to work in terms of occupational asthma, or if there's something in relation to home, i.e., they've just got a cat or something like that, and um, it's useful. And then also just you can always reference the psychological factors in relation to asthma, which they really start to talk about when you when you're in the like difficult asthma, so, yeah, asthma clinics just
0: a reference to that is sometimes useful. Yeah, I think that's a good, a good point you touched on briefly there in terms of the terminology. Yeah. So the term difficult asthma is you know, used for the group of patients with asthma who suffer with symptoms and breathlessness, some of which may be due to asthma, but some of which may be due to either other comorbidities or breathing pattern disorder or upper airway problems. Uh, And that's slightly distinct from severe asthma, which more refers to asthma, which is genuinely hard to control from a inflammation point of view. Obviously, there's a big overlap between those two groups, and they're all managed in the same tertiary difficult severe asthma clinics. But they're two slightly different groups of patients who are sometimes managed in different ways. Um, great. Well, uh, thank you very much for joining us for discussion on asthma.
1: Yes. Goodbye. Thank you very much, guys.
0: Well, it's me.